All right, well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. <laughs> uh, today we got a pretty big study. Um, we finished our two-week on the overview of the Gospels, and then we're headed into a six-week study on the Sermon on the Mount starting next week. Today's kind of a transition from that those three or four Gospels uh, into kind of a, a semi-overview of the first part of Matthew. Still dealing with some semi-academic things up front, and then uh, the second half of today and into the Sermon on the Mount will be a little more manageable and practical and pastoral. So hang with me if it's been a lot. Um, today we're going to talk about what the New Testament really means by fulfillment, because we saw last week that Matthew really cares about that. He uses the word a lot of times. And then specifically, leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, how does Matthew present Jesus as a fulfillment? in lots of ways. And then we're going to jump into Sermon on the Mount next week. Now, I'm going to race through the first 20 slides today. It's going to be a fire hose. The intent is not that you actually absorb a lot. It's really kind of an intro to let you know kind of what is out there in the background in a lot of academic study that might be of help to you one day if you ever run into critiques or doubters, or if you just have your own doubts in your own study, just know that there's a wealth of academia that's out there to help you. And then for the few of you who might want to pursue that stuff, the slides and the recording will be there, but you're going to need hours and hours to really dive in and flip back and forth in your Bible and go to the different resources I have. So, and for those who don't care that much about that stuff, I want to get through it so we can get on to the, to the other stuff. So hang with me for a few minutes here and there will be a chance to, to ask questions. All right, so this is from last week. Um, just an overview of Matthew and what we're going to, I just want to highlight there. You see right away in chapter one that Matthew talks a lot, 15 times he talks about what it means to fulfill. This was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. All right, so what does fulfillment really mean? Well, the word fulfillment just means to fill up, but that doesn't really tell us what it means. Some, somehow when the New Testament wants to ensure that what the author is saying fulfills the old, fulfills a certain verse, a certain theme, somehow it completes it. Uh, but there's, there's really one major way and then a bunch of other ways that I'll just call nuanced kind of a broader ways. And so the classic way you would probably look at Luke 4 would maybe be the classic. Jesus is reading from the scroll of Isaiah and he says, this, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Isaiah wrote something that was intended for a certain person, a certain time, a certain place. A very specific prophecy has been fulfilled. And Jesus is saying what Isaiah wrote in his time is about me. It's about my ministry right now. And Matthew uses that quite a bit as well, right there in chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So Matthew is claiming right there that Jesus is the fulfillment of what Isaiah had talked about. Now, even with a, a classic prophecy like this, we don't assume that what Isaiah prophesied per se only happened just for Jesus. We recognize that in many ways, sometimes that prophecy has some kind of partial immediate fulfillment, and then it opens up. It's very possible, there's a debate on this, that when Isaiah predicted a virgin having a son, that maybe another virgin had a son prior to that. Or maybe, maybe it was a partial fulfillment in the way that the virgin is a young woman and not 
not a full virgin like Mary was. Uh, there's lots of possibilities, but in other places it's clear. For instance, when uh, in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, when um, David has promised a son who will build a house and will reign on the throne, you can look through there and very much it prophesies about Solomon who would come after him. And yet we know ultimately from the New Testament that is, it was never going to ultimately be fulfilled except in Jesus. And so in that way, we have classical um, fulfillments. What we would probably normally think of when we hear the word fulfill, but that's not the only kind we have. There's other types of fulfillments that are much, they're much more nuanced, much broader. And Matthew's going to employ a lot of those as well as other authors. For instance, in chapter two, he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you go back to Hosea 11.1, 1, he lists it right there. But Hosea is a prophet, but in that instance, he's not actually prophesying. He's just narrating history. He's just talking about what happened to Israel. Um, out of Egypt I called my son. But somehow, and, and we'll talk about this more in a bit, but somehow Matthew is calling that a fulfillment, that what Jesus has done is now fulfilling really history that's cited. And, and, and there's a host of examples we could give where the fulfillment isn't exactly the, the type of classical fulfillment uh, we might expect. So how do we recognize fulfillment? Uh, you may or may not know that the, there are no quotation marks. None of those usual marks we have uh, in our language were present in the original manuscripts in the Hebrew or the Greek. In fact, I don't even think there's spaces in the letters. It's just a bunch of letters on a scroll. And you just kind of know by reading um, where it is. You have, sometimes have to determine if it's a sentence or a question mark or exactly where a new thought, a new paragraph would start. Um, there's no verses. There's no chapters. So a lot of the stuff we have that really helps us and we're, are necessary in our language weren't there. And so we have to look for other ways to know when, when is the Old Testament or the New Testament writer really specifically citing and referring back to uh, an Old Testament text. Now, normally, there's a very clear introduction, uh, right? So as indeed he says in Hosea, or Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, the author says, hey, I'm about to turn away from my thoughts to Hosea or, or Isaiah or somebody like that. Sometimes it's a little more general. The Lord had spoken by the prophet or for this is what the promise said. So it's very, again, it goes to a specific text without naming the prophet. And then sometimes it's just very general as it is written or as the spirit says, what was spoken by the prophets or my favorites are in Hebrews where he says, it has been testified somewhere or he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way as if he doesn't even know where it comes from. That's probably true for a lot of us. Um, let's see. So usually that's what we have. There's no argument uh, uh, and we can carry on with our lives and, and take it as usually a classical fulfillment. But other times it's a little less obvious. Romans 9 is an example where uh, Paul is just kind of, he clearly quotes uh, the Old Testament, but doesn't say that he is. He just kind of assumes that his, his readership will know it. Not all are children of Abraham because they're his offsprings, but through Isaac shall your offspring be gained. And other times it's even murkier than that. Um, in Romans, Romans 9 through 11 has tons of these examples where Paul's just throwing out scripture after scripture after scripture, usually from Isaiah. And he just kind of quotes it. He doesn't really preface it. He doesn't act like he's quoting it. And perhaps he's not even meaning to, to kind of have the reader go back 
into that Old Testament text and think of it through the original context, he's kind of lifting it for his own purposes. Uh, and I'm again, I'll, I'm going to leave a lot of these in the notes so you can jump through the room. I don't want to bog us down too much to jump through everyone, but there's tons and tons of these. So basically, when you get kind of get into the into this realm, you're you're a little less sure if the author is intending to cite. Is he intending to quote fulfill this text, or is he doing something a little more nuanced and broader with it? And then of course, there's much broader things where you, we would not put quotations on it. Uh, and, they're, and they're not in our translation. So there's conceptual influence. So instance, the writers kind of assume you live in that day, you understand what a covenant is, what sacrifice means, what law means. And so there's just normal uses of language. And then there's allusions, particularly when Jesus is mocked, the way the mocking is described really goes back to the language in the different Psalms of lament. And, and I think there's an intended purpose there that as they shook their heads at him, it would bring up all this language um, from multiple Psalms. There's different structural similarities. We talked last week about how Matthew's genealogy is structured in such a way, 14 times three, 42 generations, is structured for a specific reason. And possibly his arrangement of his five books is, is structured after the five books of the Torah. And people argue about that kind of stuff. But surely the writers were much cl more clever than maybe we, we give them credit for things are going on literarily that maybe we don't catch just at a surface reading. And so there's a real richness to our scriptures uh, that's behind it all that we should really appreciate. Another thing is uh, applying Old Testament principles. And this gets, again, as I go down this list, you'll have more and more disagreement among people exactly how to read these. The classic is from 1 Corinthians 9.9, 9, uh, quoting Deuteronomy 25.4, don't muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And then that's quoted again in 1 Timothy 5. Uh, so clearly in the law, this is really about oxes and not muzzling them and the kind of work you'll get from your beast of burden. And yet Paul's going to apply it now to messengers of the gospel. And it's kind of a principle as opposed to a specific commander. And then, of course, the, the discussion comes. Was that ever intended by Moses when he wrote Deuteronomy? Did he know that type of, quote, fulfillment? And those are the kind of the discussions that we get into. And then there are times, we won't go through any of these, but where a New Testament author kind of throws out somebody's quote, or maybe somebody who's not even a scriptural writer. And, and we're going to talk about this in two weeks. We're going to have a big lesson on the law. What, is Matthew, what does Jesus mean in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you've heard this, but I tell you this. And it's perhaps at least some of those instances this is what uh, Matthew is doing. That is Jesus really quoting the Old Testament? Is he quoting the law? Or is he quoting some mischaracterization of the law? And he's correcting that. Again, lots of disagreement can come into this. Then there are some real challenging fulfillment texts. Um, kind of like when I talked about with the Gospels the last couple of weeks. Um, there's a way of reading the Gospels that, that really helps when you understand different literary techniques you understand that it's written like an ancient biography, but that doesn't necessarily remove all the challenges. There's still challenges that remain when you're trying to harmonize the gospels. Well, same thing here. Um, they're understanding that fulfillment isn't quote, a classical, I, I can find a specific author that says this specific prophecy. Understanding that is helpful and helps mitigate issues, but it doesn't remove them all. There's still, there's still some weird ones out there that, and there's lots of answers for these. Um, 
they're just a little less certain, I guess. In Mark chapter 1, he cites Isaiah, but he actually quotes Malachi. So that's kind of weird. <laughs> like, did he not know where that came from or something deeper going on that uh, Malachi and Isaiah are on the same page? Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, he talks about um, the fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. That's kind of, we can kind of see that, the crossing of the Jordan. And all eat the same spiritual food, okay? That sounds like manna. And all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Well, if you're looking for something kind of a, a straightforward a narrative that's being applied, Paul's kind of going a lot more into maybe his own thoughts or his own interpretation of things uh, than he was in the previous verses. Um, so where is he drawing that from? It's, it's just not quite sure. James 4, chapter 5, he says, The scripture says he yearns jealousy over you. Um, but the scripture never actually says that. We don't know where he's getting that from. Maybe it's some other text, you know, that we haven't found, some other manuscript, not sure. And then a uh, note for us in our study in Matthew, uh, at the end of chapter 2, he says, He went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, the prophets really never said that. Now I'll show you later, or at least it'll be in the notes, where, where that might have come from in Isaiah 11. But it's certainly not straightforward. What exactly is Matthew talking about? And then this is really maybe the stuff that might really trip people up. I don't know how much when you read your New Testament and you see a quote from the Old that you actually turn to the Old Testament text. It's awesome on our devices now that we can jump right there. But even then, if you just jump to the one verse, you might not realize that it almost feels like Paul is just kind of doing what he wants with the Old Testament text. It doesn't seem straightforward. Sometimes you're really left scratching your head. And not just Paul, but a lot of the New Testament writers. Like, it almost feels like Paul is misquoting it, that he's, he's misapplying. He, he doesn't really know what he's doing. Like, Paul, this is not what they said. You're, you're just kind of making things up. You're getting, you're getting pretty uh, loose with your application here. Obviously, he's an inspired writer. And so even if we can't answer it, we, we take pause and assume that the Spirit knows what he's doing, right? Ultimately, there's one author. But, for instance, in Romans 11, quoting Isaiah 59, he says the, the Redeemer will come to Zion. Well, Isaiah said he was going to come from Zion. I mean, that's not just a small twist or a, a light application change, right? That's, that's a complete change of meaning. So, Paul, what are you doing there? Uh, or in Deuteronomy 32, he says, rejoice his people. He's telling Israel to rejoice. And yet, Paul's going to apply that specifically to the Gentiles. His whole point in Romans 15 is that the Gentiles are heirs with the Jews in the promises. And it's almost like he's, he's taking a text that almost would say the exact opposite um, to include them in. So it's really interesting. And then really similar would be a shift in application. Um, Psalm 19, his voice is heard through all the earth and words to the end of the world. And that's about nature, right? The, the revelation of nature has gone out into all the earth. And yet now Paul is going to apply that to the gospel, um, that the gospel goes out in all the earth. So very interesting. Is that valid? And that's the question we're not answering today. I'm not, I'm not going to get into, is this valid? There's going to be some stuff in your notes. Uh, let's see. Also in Romans 10, he's going to quote Deuteronomy 30, where this is also interesting Deuteronomy 30 is talking about um, 
the law. Who will ascend into heaven and bring Christ down? Who will descend to the earth, bring Christ up from the dead? Well, in Deuteronomy 30, that's talking about the law. Like the law, the law is with you. You don't have to go to the other nations. The law has been given to you right here from Mount Sinai. And yet in Romans 10, Paul is going to do the exact opposite. He's basically saying, you don't need the law. You have Christ. You have his law. You have the gospel. And it almost makes it, again, the exact opposite. So some actually pretty challenging texts. And Paul's clearly doing it deliberately. We just might not know exactly what he's doing. Okay. So, so what of all this? Lots of info there in their notes. Uh, you can go back to lots of examples. Well, I would say we want to avoid a couple of extremes. First, let's avoid the extreme of being just hyper-allegorical, typological, figurative, where almost to the point that you're just going to see certain words and just pull them out of, uh, you know, and, and use them for your purposes. It's kind of like opening the Bible and putting your finger on a verse and claiming that for yourself. Like, like, like the Holy Spirit and the biblical author didn't have an intent for you to understand and study and, and, and really get to know what the Spirit is teaching us. Like, you're just going to do what you want with it. Um, it's very postmodern in a sense. Like, this text doesn't mean anything. Um, so we have to be careful. Even though we believe in allegory, we believe in topology, we believe in figurative language, uh, we just have to be careful that we just don't use it to our own whim. So we're basically forcing the text to say what we want it to say. Um, don't immediately spiritualize everything. I think we have a lot of examples in our own Reformed history where this happens. Um, Spurgeon is one of my favorite <laughs> preachers ever, and he does this. And like, the color red, anywhere he can see it, is going to go to the blood of Christ. You know, it's just it seems to me at least very quick to get there. So let's not pretend that we're the Holy Spirit um, and let, let not the Bible kind of be forced into our own purposes. On the other extreme, we want to avoid a real wooden literalistic understanding of the meaning. Um, there's a thought out there that if the original author and the original audience wouldn't have understood the final ultimate application, that it can't be true. And you kind of get this into some of your real extreme dispensational circles. Um, like the value of the dry bones can't have anything to do with spiritual life coming out of spiritual bones. It's physically only this one valley in Israel, and this is going to happen in the millennium. And maybe, of course, it could be both. But I think we completely miss it if, um, if, if we don't understand these nuances, like, like the Solomon and Jesus can both be the son of David. And there might be multiple layers um, of that prophecy being fulfilled. Because Otherwise, what you do is you, you see some of these passages, you go back and you force the Old Testament to mean something or the New Testament means something, and you try to harmonize it in some literalistic way, and it doesn't work. Uh, it, it's a really fundamentalist way of approaching it, that you think it should be simple. You think with your modern lenses that um, the Bible should talk like you know we do in the 21st century in, in Western America. It, and really, it's going to look strange. Um, Doubters of the Bible are going to have a field day with those kind of interpretations. And so we need to accept a level of nuance. Even sometimes we, we don't know what's going on, but clearly there's, there's some nuance going on. And ultimately, we rest in the fact that we have these 40 different authors in the Bible, but there is one author, right? The Holy Spirit. And whatever he intended, whatever he revealed at the original time, um, we get a much fuller picture as we come to the New Testament. And we get to enjoy seeing uh, some some of why it was written in the first place, and then I won't go into this, but this is a this would be a huge not just a lesson but a Sunday school series on listening for what um, Doug Moo calls 
echoes. And so instead of going piece by piece, looking at a verse by verse, perhaps sometimes when Paul is talking about these things, about the we rejoice our Gentiles with his people, his whole trajectory in his book is that the Gentiles are, are able to participate and enjoy what, Jesus, what God promised to Israel. And he probably sees in Israel the same trajectory, right? That eventually the gospel was going to go out to the nations. Now, they didn't exactly know what that meant. But so perhaps Paul is quoting and, and seeing Isaiah fulfilled uh, in a much broader sense than a piece-by-piece -piece verse. And that you're only going to come to by lots and lots of study and meditation on God's word. Just marinating in it, getting to know um, how the Bible talks, um, getting to know a little bit of the culture of the day, that's helpful. Um, and just learning to talk and think like God does. And, and that just comes from really a lifetime of, of daily reading and meditation and, and getting to think like uh, the scriptures do. And so that's, that's part of what it means to mature. Wouldn't expect a new Christian to understand that. They, they're going to trip up a lot over language that they're not familiar with. And so that's kind of where we want to go in our lives. It's one of our goals in our study of God's word. All right, so I will pause there, Jed, if you don't mind unmuting. And that's my fire hose. And then we'll hopefully get on to some things. If you don't want to ask a question, please mute your mic. No living room. Any questions? Wrigley. All right. Well, if you think of any, we can ask them at the end. Okay. Okay, now with all that in the background, I don't want to jump in to understand the challenges or try to justify them anymore. I just want to take Matthew now at his word. Uh, what does he say? What does he use in all these types of fulfillments? How does he then um, talk about Jesus fulfilling these things in the Old Testament? So uh, first, I want to see that um, we're jumping into that first section. Remember that Matthew is divided into these five large sections. There's a narrative, and then there's a large teaching section. And Sermon on the Mount is going to be that large teaching section, number one. And so we're going to kind of talk about that intro that leads up to that. Back in chapter one, he says, the genealogy of Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's rooting Jesus, not out of thin air. He's not just popping into history out of nowhere. He comes in a context. He comes in the in a line of, of fulfilling a prophecy and of promises that have come before and anchors him in the Old Testament, in the forefathers. And then I mentioned last week um, what this new Israel knew Moses, and that's kind of what I want to unpack for us now. So how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? Uh, particularly Matthews 1 through 4, but obviously Sermon on the Mount goes through chapter 7. And so based on what we just said, you will find that Matthew uses both classical and nuanced fulfillments. And then he actually includes, we've already seen some of those, actually some of those more ch uh, challenging texts. And then we want to look at Jesus in all these different categories. So here's just a, in order of Matthew presents them, um, several prophecies. Um, the ones that are in parentheses are kind of more um, allusions. They're not like, he doesn't say, well, the, you know, Jesus's baptism was to fulfill Israel walking through the Red Sea. It's just it's kind of obvious in a sense. And there's probably a lot more of those types of um, um, 
less explicit fulfillments going on, but all the other ones there you can see are very specific. Matthew comes to a text and says, this was to fulfill this, this was to fulfill this. And so there's tons of them. I mean, that would be a great Sunday right there to jump back and forth those and kind of see, and, and maybe you would do your own um, homework and like, which of these would fall into a classical, which of these would be nuanced, and which of these would actually present me challenges. I wouldn't really know how to answer a skeptic on these. And this is the kind of Bible study uh, you can be doing as, as you mature uh, in your experience. I, I wouldn't jump into this right away if you're a new believer or going through the Bible for the first time, but this is kind of where you, you want to get. All right, so let's look at Jesus being all these new things, or really the ultimate fulfillment of these things. Number one, that word genealogy, Matthew is very particular in how he sets up his genealogy. It's the, the, he, the Hebrew and Greek there are very similar. It's the generations of Jesus, not just the genealogy. And it really goes back to Genesis. So we're going to see right away that Matthew starts at the beginning. Again, he's, he's kind of taking this Old Testament understanding, writing to an audience who probably primarily kind of were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And he's going to kind of walk through um, the Old Testament in some very broad ways. So he's going to start at the beginning. And then he's presented as a new Adam. Uh, I, I said last week that Luke concentrates a lot more on Jesus' humanity than Matthew, um, and his genealogy actually goes back to Adam. But you see a hint of it even here, uh, chapter 1, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And he says, that means God with us. And so somehow it's tied to the name Emmanuel is God entering and being with us, and yet it's in the act of his incarnation. It's in the act of him becoming a son. And so somehow it's tied to that human flesh as well. And then Jesus is presented as a new Israel. And so this isn't per se in order, but uh, you can see right there, these five major events that were in Israel's life are kind of repeated here. And so it's not, Matthew doesn't come out and say, this was to fulfill that Jesus is the new Israel. You kind of have to get that by reading and having that back, that, um, that context and understanding the Old Testament as you kind of walk through Matthew's gospel here. In, the, in just a few chapters, it's very clear that he's paralleling what happens in Jesus' life, the way he's portraying Jesus. Remember, we said the gospel writers aren't just taking photographs. They're portraying Jesus and his message in a certain way. And, and, and they're... they're they're drawing on a canvas and wanting to teach us something. And here, so we've got the journey to Egypt, right? Where Israel went down because of or a famine, right? In the days of Joseph. But Matthew is sent because Herod's trying to kill the boys. And, um, and then there's oppressive king is killing children. And then he calls on my son. We saw that in Matthew 2 and Hosea 11. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And then this is a bit surprising because it's not as straightforward. But 1 Corinthians 10 actually helps us a lot on that, 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 that as they passed through the sea, they were baptized into the cloud and into the sea. And so the whole idea of baptism is tied up with that passing of the Red Sea and, and into the wilderness. And then we have, uh, in Israel's case, 40 years in the wilderness because they didn't believe when the spies came back. That, and God said, you're going to spend a year in the wilderness for every day that you searched out the land and then didn't trust me. And then we see Matthew following his baptism sent out into the wilderness to be tempted uh, by the devil. And at that time in the wilderness for Israel is called a time of testing, a time of temptations. 
And so this, again, would be an extremely rich study for you to walk through and to just think about. Uh, and it's amazing that not only was Matthew as some author writing a book able to be really artistic and um, a cool author in, in putting these things together, but God clearly, sovereignly uh, dictated history this way, right? He, you can look back with 2020 hindsight now that what he took Israel through was all in anticipation that he's going to take Jesus, his ultimate fulfillment, um, through these same experiences in a sense, and to really stamp his, his approval and say, this is uh, my son. Let's look at a couple of those a little uh, deeper. Exodus 4, um, talking to Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go that let my son go that he may serve. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Which of course he does in the 10th plague, right? And so Israel is God's son. He's his beloved son. He loves him in Hosea. He, the language all through Hosea 11 there is awesome taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms and bent down and fed them. It's just this picture of Israel being this little child that's being cared for by a loving father. But now Jesus is that son, is that beloved son. He's going to call him out of Egypt. Um, and then, of course, I, I mentioned the baptism passage there. And so there's just a richness to these analogies that, that is really worth your time and your meditation. And then we could say that Jesus presented as the new Moses. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but we kind of know the, the Exodus was a rescuing from bondage, right? And there's a lot of symbolism tied up there as coming out of Egypt and, and, and the promised people and God saving them and giving him his law and, and caring for them and becoming a nation and, and all those things. But even within the Old Testament, in the life of Israel, um, the Exodus takes on a, a motif. It, it takes on its own kind of psyche, and, and everything is tied up into the Exodus. And so when it comes to the exile, um, it's a real reminder. God's people are in this promised land, right? They were rescued from bondage in this promised land, and now they're being thrown back out into bondage by a foreigner. And there's going to be this, this return. A lot of these prophets now speaking to the people in exile, there's going to be another Exodus, another a freeing from bondage and coming back to their land. Um, and so it's interesting here that Matthew now quotes Jeremiah. So we're not, we're not back in early Israel history, right? We're not talking about Israel coming out of Egypt. And yet we're going to mention Rachel. <laughs> Rachel um, with the forefathers, the, the era of the forefathers. We're, we're going back to the beginnings of Israel now. And then Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. So after the, the uh, pillaging of, of Jerusalem, it was besieged for a year. Lots of people died. They were decimated. And the survivors were gathered in Ramah, which is just north of Jerusalem. So very close to Jerusalem and Bethlehem, where all these prophecies are taking place, these fulfillments are taking place. And, and the, the, they're, they're gathered and they're carried away out of the covenant land uh, into exile, into another bondage. So a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So how is Rachel weeping all these generations, these centuries later? It's, it's almost as if, you know, they're thinking back to the forefathers. What, 
sometimes we say, what would so-and-so think if they could see this from their grave? They'd be rolling in their grave. It's almost like the ghost of Rachel is there. She's just weeping over what has happened to this, this promise. God promised this, this people in a nation to bless them and be with them forever. And, and she's looking down through the ages, as it were, and just weeping. And what has happened to God's promises? And, and Matthew lifts that to say the same thing. Here we have the chosen one, uh, the promised one, in just the midst of being, having to leave Israel, go to Egypt. And then even when they come back, they can't settle in Jerusalem and, and start this public ministry that will recover the nation. They're sent to Podunk, Nazareth, up in, in Galilee, into the sticks. And so there's just this illusion there that's actually quite beautiful that in the midst of what would seem to be just a hopeless situation, that God has a plan. He knows what he's doing. And ultimately, Jesus is going to be that hope. Um, Moses was the hope, the Savior, the Redeemer, to lead them out of Egypt. Uh, eventually, God would have to do something to get them out of exile. And Jesus is now the one that's ultimately going to come to light into darkness and rescue his people from their bondage to sin. And, and it's just beautiful. And we need to meditate on it and worship Jesus more as we see these things. So that's a lot to get out of just a quick quotation there, right? In Matthew chapter 2. And then, of course, next week we'll get into Matthew 5 as he, he sees the crowds. He goes up on a mountain, sits down, and he teaches them, right? The picture of Moses again. Almost everything in Matthew happens up on top of a mountain. Um, but, of course, the difference is Jesus isn't just going up to receive the law written by the finger of God. He's going to present himself now as a lawgiver. You've heard this, but I say to you this. He's going to fix uh, the, Jesus, uh, the people's attention on what he is now giving them what it means to live in his kingdom. And lastly, Jesus is presented as the new king. We've already said he's the son of David. Uh, chapter two, he's the king of the Jews. That's what Herod was worried about. He, the Magi said he was, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. Went out throughout Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And as we'll see in the Sermon on the Mount, just the references to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. <laughs> Jesus is establishing his kingdom. Again, which is not new. This is the fulfillment of what it was always meant to be. God was going to establish his rule on this earth. And because of the failure of human beings, because of the weaknesses of the old covenant, as Hebrews says it, uh, we needed a new covenant. We needed a new king, a new savior. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes authoritative teaching because they are authoritative because he is the authority. He is the king. And so what does all this mean? Over and over again, we learn that history has proven over and over that mere mortals are going to fail. Adam fell in the garden. He had the chance for perfect obedience. Um, he didn't even, wasn't even born with indwelling sin and, but we all, he's our representative, but he also shows what we would have done. We would have failed as well. And that's why immediately after the garden is the promise of a seed that would come and finally fulfill what Adam had done. And of course, we read more specifically about that in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus is the last Adam. He's the second Adam. And we walk through just a bit about what it meant for Jesus to be Israel. Israel was supposed to be the light to the nations. They were supposed to obey God's law perfectly. 
um, and, and be a light to all the Gentiles, to all the nations. Part of the Abrahamic covenant was always to go reach the nations, as we find out in Galatians 3 and Romans 4 and elsewhere. But they failed. That was the problem with the old covenant, that they failed. There was no forgiveness, no intrinsic um, washing of conscience and everything available in the old covenant. And so something new was going to be needed. And then we see the teaching of Moses and the establishment of his kingdom. And that's those last two is what we'll, we'll see the most as we go into the Sermon on the Mount. So again, next week, we will start right there. Um, again, we'll start six weeks on it. Um, and we're, next week, we're going to start specifically at the Beatitudes. So if you want to read ahead at the first 16 verses of chapter 5 and start thinking about what, what do these Beatitudes mean, the kind of fanciful spiritual language, but maybe just have a, have a sense of what you think um, they would mean. And then I'll give it away a little bit. I'm going to ask you next week, how do these characteristics of, of kingdom people, citizens, of children of God, how could they maybe be misunderstood? Like we might see somebody's character trait that, oh, is that what it means to be meek in spirit? Um, and so we will, we will look at that more fully next week. All right. So, Jed, if you wouldn't mind unmuting, then we can turn to any comments or questions. <clears throat> this is Ed. Uh, Keith? Yeah, I hear it. Okay. Um, just a comment. I've recently been reading through uh, Charles Hodge's A Way of Life. It's a banner of truth. Uh, it's still in print. And one of the best applications of Old Testament scripture to messianic prophecy, Hodge, you know, just was such a consummate scholar. So I really recommend that. I think it's, it's not much. You know, I, I've seen it on um, the used book, you know, for two or three dollars. So The Way of Life by, by Charles Hodge. The other thing about Paul in terms of application of scripture, you know, he, in Corinthians, he talks about being a, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a student of Gamaliel. And although the Pharisees rejected Christ, you don't see mention of them questioning his Old Testament you know, scholarship. So Paul's confidence there is uh, truly, truly seen. So I thank you. This, is, this has been very good. I appreciate it. I appreciate that too. I, I do wonder, so here's a guy who's completely taught in the law, right? But obviously had, was blinded. So we know that the blinders come off. I just wonder, I, I would just be so exciting as in those three years, he just went into Arabia <laughs> and the new revelations he received, but as he was able to just walk through uh, his old Testament again with totally new eyes. Um, it's amazing. Exactly. Thank you. Anyone else? Oh. I hear a squeal. Sorry. Um, hi, this is John Mill. Go ahead. Go ahead, John. John, that was probably my fault. I muted one of your two devices, and it looks like you muted the other one at the same time. <laughs> Keith, it's Terry. Hi, Terry. Hey, really great. Um, I'm wondering if uh, Jesus, as the new high priest, shouldn't be on that list also. If 
as the sac Matthew presenting him as a sacrifice and going behind the curtain, the veil. Oh, that would definitely be true. I don't know if he brings that up too clearly in the first seven chapters. In the first the part, I, okay. Is the only reason I didn't include it. Um, but certainly that would be true. I mean, and what's amazing, and as Jesus is a priest, in the sense that he, in two ways, right? He he intercedes for us. He he prays to God on our behalf, and then he also offers the sacrifice. But right. then, amazingly, he's also the sacrifice itself. He the sacrifice. So he's a priest that offers himself. Um, so he he really fulfills all. He is our prophet, priest, and king. Right. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, John, you want to give it another shot? Okay. <laughs> well, there's a tangent, but Ed reminded me of Saul. I was just wondering this week, is of the old is Paul of the New Testament supposed to be read as the new Saul, the failure from the Old Testament? <laughs> Uh, I've never, I don't know. I've, I've never heard that. Um, oh, okay. I, I mean, maybe certainly if God could have, um, created things that way, you know, like that his name would be the same. Yeah. I don't know. I've never, it's not something I've really thought about and studied. Oh, okay. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Anyone else? Just a point of order, everyone. I'm not going to unmute you all at once. Um, so, but I'm allowing you to unmute yourselves. I found out that if I unmute everybody, it kind of goes nuts a little bit. So let's let's not do that. But feel free to unmute yourself and ask any questions or type into the chat with any questions. Let's have a little discussion here. Yeah, just let me know if there's a chat because I don't see them. Okay, since <laughs> the question, so the um, authority of God's word doesn't depend on stuff in there that we can't explain, we couldn't explain to a skeptic. I, I missed some of that. Are you saying the the authority of God's word doesn't depend on us understanding it, or it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't depend on like those things that you brought up that uh, that uh, we'd have a hard time explaining to skeptics, like like uh, Matthew saying he's citing Isaiah, but he's actually citing Ezekiel, Malachi, yeah. And, Malachi and you know other things like that well that that is I, I think if we take a real wooden um, simplistic look at things I think those things would shatter us so uh -huh. um, you know when, when when skeptics come if if we're gonna if we're gonna present the Bible a certain way and they can find holes in it it kind of everything falls to pieces but if we just kind of accept at the outset that there's going to be nuance here, 
um, and things we don't quite understand. Um, uh -huh. But even in the absolute worst case, um, and, I, and I don't believe this, but say there is a mistake. Say that uh, one of the New Testament writers wrote a mistake. Um, uh -huh. That doesn't necessarily logically undo everything that they would teach, right? Um, um, it would be odd. I think it would be a challenge. But so the question is, if, if we kind of asked this with the Gospels the last couple of weeks, if there was a discrepancy, if there was a true, no kidding, factual discrepancy in the Gospels, uh -huh. would that mean uh -huh. Jesus can rise from the dead? Well, no, because Jesus rose from the dead before anything was ever written. And so even if there's a mistake, quote unquote, mistake that's passed down, um, that wouldn't necessarily undo all the trustworthiness. But obviously, you would start to ask questions like, well, what else did they get wrong, right? And so uh -huh. um, I don't think it unravels anyway. Um, but I don't think we need to go there. I think we can accept the fact that there's going to be a few places that, you know, I don't know. Maybe we'll find out one day. There's been a lot of questions over the centuries that have been answered, given time, oh. right? Okay. For the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were found, there was a lots of criticism about the veracity of the manuscripts. and and the, you know why would the New Testament authors quote from a Greek manuscript, uh, the Septuagint, as opposed to the the Masoretic text, the Hebrew uh -huh. text? Well, when Dead Sea Scrolls come out, it's kind of proven that there was actually a Hebrew manuscript that matches the Greek. And so um, there's been archaeology finds, and yep, the the authors are right here. Now we're of late the last 20, 30 years, a lot of scholarship in the fact that we understand the Gospels is biography. Once you, so I, I wouldn't be surprised that some of these challenges are, are going to be answered in time. Um, oh, but ultimately, okay. our, our trust is absolutely at some point going to be by faith, right? That God, by the Holy Spirit, has preserved what we need um, and protected it through the ages. That isn't something we can, quote, prove. We can throw out all the evidence we want. Um, ultimately, we, we trust God, right? When Jesus is the shepherd, he speaks and his sheep lift up and hear his voice. They, they, lit, they uh -huh. hear his voice because there's power in the word itself. You know, Paul says in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. It's not proving the gospel. It's not having all your theological ducks in a row. The, the word of God intended by the spirit goes out and opens hearts. And so, um, so you, I don't think we will be able to totally answer all the skeptics' questions. Uh, and that's okay. I think the amount yeah. of evidence is on our side there's no doubt there's no objective skeptic out there they're they're all biased they all have their own motives and we uh -huh. can get them at their own game showing tremendous bias uh to the evidence oh yeah okay thanks thanks john it's a good question All right, well, Jed, would you mind closing us up in prayer? Sure. Our Father, thank you for um, the opportunity to come together and uh, open your word and the Gospels in particular, um, even under circumstances like this. Thank you for the uh, amazing opportunity to still be allowed to spend time in your word um, and even in limited ways, fellowship with one another. I pray that you would help each one of us to not lose track of um, 
lose track of time or lose track of what's important, but to uh, utilize the the time that we have, the time that we've been given to um, to make focused efforts. Um, pray that you would be with all of us today, be with those that are putting on the service, those that are um, working towards those ends. I pray that uh, everything would work smoothly and that we would all be able to fellowship and worship together, even as separated as we are. Pray and ask you for this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.